Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. We're reading it in the evening. In fact, we just read Daniel 6 last night, but uh, not last Sunday night, I should say, excuse me. But we are uh, in a series considering God's law and its challenge for the world. And so I thought there was hardly a better place to go in the book of Daniel to consider God's laws and man's laws. While you're turning there, I will note that we forgot to announce that uh, Buddy Howell was having over the singles at his house today for lunch. If you uh, would like to join them, you can see Buddy for his address. From Daniel chapter 6, I'm going to read the whole chapter to set it before you, but we'll be looking at much more than this chapter today. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these, three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault, because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find a charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign it in writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. And then these men approached him at the going down of the sun uh, excuse me, and the men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law 
of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, who is a God like you, the living God and steadfast forever, even as it was by Daniel's faith that he was so blessed and delivered. So now increase our faith, we pray, and instruct us in our course in these difficult times as well. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Religious freedom is a lot more than the freedom to worship privately according to one's conscience. It is freedom from a system in which the people or the state claim a higher loyalty than God from its citizens. And freedom of religion includes, of course, freedom of expression and action, the liberty even to criticize the status quo, to speak out and to live out the faith even as Jesus did and taught us to do, we proclaim a freedom that is, therefore, a stewardship, a fragile but costly stewardship, a gift that entails responsibility, using it to protect lives and dignity and freedom for people created in the image of God. And we warn that without such a recognition, without such God-given rights, the state must devolve into tyranny. Christians find it difficult to live and serve in society from time to time because of a conflict between, as Jesus put it, 
the demands of God and the demands of Caesar. And we could just look at the newspaper and we could see that uh, these things are in the headlines. Practically every week, a doctor finds himself in trouble with his medical board because he refuses to refer a couple for abortion when the sole reason they express for having it is because they're expecting a girl, not a boy. A Christian organization loses its charter on campus because they are accused of discrimination because they require their officers to be Christian. Well, as I say, we could find examples every week. Over the years, Christians have changed the world precisely because so many of them were willing to suffer from it rather than conform to it. And such peaceful and courageous resistance was part of their witness to the world, that there is a God, there is a higher law, that there is something worth living and dying for if necessary. It was, after all, a persecuted church that first revolutionized the world of that day, and it will likely be a persecuted church that changes the world again, even bringing back true liberty and protection of the rights of speech and conscience. Well... It's never easy to serve the Lord in the world, as you know. It never has been, and it never will be. But some periods of history are admittedly especially difficult, and Daniel was certainly living in such a time. His surroundings meant intense pressure, and the book of Daniel faces those pressures realistically. This book was written in part to instruct God's people who are living for him as strangers in a strange land, how they might navigate those treacherous waters. It teaches involvement, wisdom, compassion, integrity, excellence, and godliness. And we're taught to live by a courageous, unswerving faith in the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're not going to consider all the ins and outs of chapter 6 today, but I would like to use the book of Daniel as a whole to consider the larger question as it fits into our series about God's law and man's law. And we're going to focus on three crises of confidence in this book where the demands of the state and the demands of God come into conflict in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6. And as I mentioned earlier, if you're visiting with us, we're in this series on the law of God and how it challenges the direction of the moral compass of society and teaches us our role and place in it. Christians are under divine command to obey all human laws for God's sake. We've we've considered the top ten, the Ten Commandments. We considered what Jesus called the first commandment and the second that's like it. We considered what he said the new commandment is, to love uh, each other as I have loved you. And yet we recognize that uh, these are just the big ones. And as a matter of fact, every human law to which we are subject is also a law of God. Christians are under divine command to obey all human laws for God's sake. So Peter would write, for example, in his first letter, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, 
you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Fear God, honor the king. Easy enough. Fear God, honor the king. But how do we proceed when we cannot do both? This is the question that Daniel and his friends faced from the time they entered into Babylon. From the moment they arrived, there was a crisis, and so there was until the end. We're going to consider three crises, as I say. First, from chapter 1, under the heading, Making an Appeal. Then from chapter 2, Not Doing What Man's Law Requires. And chapter... Did I say chapter 2? Point 2 is chapter 3. I know it's confusing. I'm confusing myself. Point two is chapter three, not doing what man's law requires, and chapter six, doing what man's law forbids. How are we going to hold these things together? Fear God, honor the king. Well, we'll begin with chapter one, making an appeal. Chapter one, which of course I did not read to you. Uh, Nevertheless, I'll explain some things and rely upon your memory of this chapter. As soon as these young men arrive in Babylon. A small challenge is presented to these Hebrews. They are given a portion of the king's wine and meat to eat, which does indeed sound delightful and generous, but is a crisis of conscience to a faithful Jew. No... no, uh, um, uh, Well... Obviously, it would not be kosher in any case, but almost certainly the ancient practice is offering both meat and wine to idols. Uh, A great difficulty for the conscience of any faithful believer. So we read that Daniel and his friends were resolved they were not going to, as it says, defile themselves by eating it. That's the original difficulty. And right away, these young men are facing a conflict between their commitment to God and the claims of the state. What should they do? What would you do in such a situation? You were required to do something in violation of your conscience. Perhaps it's a small thing, but the principle is at stake. And, well, if you give up now, what about later? Daniel could have organized a protest. He might have made up signs. Jews against heathen food. He might have created a march. Um, he, he and his friends could have marched up and down outside the palace and made it absolutely plain they weren't going to eat it. He could have thrown it on the floor. Daniel doesn't start by angrily defying the king to his face. He begins by showing honor and wisdom and tact and kindness to the man in immediate authority over him. It says he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And it says that God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Nevertheless, it says no. He said no. He went and found another person to make the same appeal to. And you'll notice that all through the book, people in authority do have a great affection and respect for Daniel. Indeed, he makes no threats. He shows no hostility. Later in the book, Daniel was bringing some very hard truths to these people. 
He is God's prophet in Babylon. But as far as it depends on him, he commends himself to the people with wisdom, tact, and goodwill. He says, please, uh, please test your servants ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. There's a, a graciousness in his speech. He's not being offensive. He is taking a stand, but he's doing his best to respect the man and his position of God-given authority. And so he says, please. Now, we, we know that he's not a coward. He's willing to die if necessary. But this is how he begins. And in God's mercy, that permission is granted. And I think we need to be careful before we take a sword in hand because those who live by it may well die by it as well, as Jesus also put it. We are feeling rather warm today, aren't we, again here? Sorry, I know that uh, with the change of, change of seasons and the change of thermostat, thanks, Jeremy, trying to figure that out for us. Maybe you could uh, stand guard for us out there for a, a while to open the door. Thank you so much. My point to you simply is this. When there's a conflict, Daniel seeks to resolve it in, in the kindest, most wise way. We could think about how Paul had to make his own judicial appeal, an appeal to kings and rulers, or how Obadiah pleaded with Ahab, or how Ezekiel had to protest to the elders of Israel, or how Esther had to plead with her husband, the king, to change the course of the nation for the sake of her people. Well, it's true that some of those individuals eventually turned to disobedience. They first very much tried to work within the system before they had to rebel against it. And these are the people who are committed to God fearlessly and faithfully, but they are not harsh. They are not cold or insensitive. You know, many people are committed to God, and they are fearless, and they are faithful, and they make the news. They, they do good work sometimes, but they can also be harsh and cold and insensitive and ultimately can work against their cause. God's people, like Daniel, must speak truth to power. They must educate or confront matters of morality and justice to the highest level. But they also seek to do that in the most effective and respectful way. One writer says, Daniel is the incarnation of a wise man, a man who knows how to navigate life. He knows the right action for the right situation. He knows the right word to effect a godly result. It's no wonder he was soon promoted to be the head of all the wise men of Babylon. Faced with this conflict of conscience, we, we have this in the first chapter, how to make a wise, tactful, godly appeal. But then, as you know, the plot thickens. In chapter 3, we come, secondly, to a fiery furnace. And we find Daniel's friends not doing what man's law requires. Not doing what man's law requires. Nebuchadnezzar was ruling at the time over the great kingdom of Babylon, the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen. One of the most powerful rulers of antiquity, he had absolute command over an enormous kingdom that went from modern-day Pakistan down to Egypt, a massive kingdom that was beginning to show signs of weakness and instability. 
Uh, we know from history there was a period of rebellion at this very time against Nebuchadnezzar, induced by his army. He has the greatest empire the world has ever seen. He's a conqueror of many peoples and languages and religions. He had forcibly resettled tens of thousands of foreigners into Babylon. And more would soon come. But how in this great amalgamation was he going to maintain peace, order, and control? Which is a very common situation for us today in America. And the world as a whole, I suppose. We live in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, pluralistic world of many religions with a clash of cultures and languages. And, and then there come to the nation anxious signs of disintegration. Well, how are you going to hold it together? What's to be done? So in chapter 3, we find this answer. A public test of unity. Nebuchadnezzar sets up a massive statue on the plains of Dura. Interestingly, we're not told what it was. Probably Marduk, or perhaps the emperor himself, or perhaps both. One thing we are told in that chapter is that seven times we're told it's the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. We're never told what it is, but seven times we're told it's his image that he set up. And the whole chapter stresses that whatever the statute represented, it's a test of power. It's the power that lay behind it. National unity and loyalty are going to maybe be maintained with everyone bowing down before the national idol. And you don't have to give up your religion, but you do have to subordinate it to the state or else be cast alive into a fiery furnace. One minister, Ian Duguid, writes, people can serve whatever god they choose, so long as it's clear that he takes second place to the state. When put in these terms, it becomes evident that our culture places the same pressure on each one of us to put God in second place, albeit in more subtle ways. We too find ourselves constantly pressed to keep our beliefs private and therefore secondary. My son once told me that he could read any book he liked in study hall at his public school, so long as it was not the Bible. Thankfully, we are not likely, he writes, to get thrown into a fiery furnace for being the odd one out, but we still feel pressure to conform to the demands to put our God in second place. Well, when we do have to stand up before the great national idols, you can be prepared to experience great burning wrath. That's exactly what Daniel's three friends faced. They were immediately reported. They were brought before the king himself and charged by the king to bow down to his statue. They reply, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That is to say, there's nothing that we need to say. If this is the case, if we're going to be thrown into the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, 
nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. An answer which absolutely enraged the king and embarrassed him in front of his court, and he had them cast into a furnace heated seven times over more hot. This is what's sometimes called passive resistance. Do you know what passive resistance is? The Oxford American Dictionary says it's a way of opposing a government or an enemy by peaceful means, often by refusing to obey laws or orders. It's kind of civil disobedience that God's people have practiced even from the very beginning. You can think of Peter, for instance, before the council, before the great Sanhedrin, we just read it a couple weeks ago, saying we must obey God rather than men. And they get a public beating for it. You could think about uh, how the Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children, which they did not do. They were commanded to do what God had forbidden, and they were commended because they feared God. The book of 1 Samuel records when King Saul gave a command during a military campaign that no one would eat until Saul had won his battle against the Philistines. Saul's son, Jonathan, who was not there, uh, ate honey to refresh himself from the hard battle the enemy had waged. And when Saul found out about it, he commanded that his son be put to death and his army refused to obey the king and rebuked him and saved Jonathan for being put to death would not fulfill such a wicked order. Another example in 1 Kings 18, a chapter that briefly introduces to us an official named Obadiah who feared the Lord greatly. And when the queen Jezebel ordered all of God's prophets to be killed, Obadiah, instead of carrying it out, hid a hundred of them from her and provided them food and water so that they could live. Many more examples, by the way, could be given and are given in Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. This is our calling whenever our loyalty to God is in conflict with our loyalty to the state. First and most importantly, we do have to bear a winsome witness to the truth, making our appeal by all lawful means to persuade those in authority of our cause while we suffer willingly, cheerfully, and patiently. When that fails, well, we are to flee if possible. There's other examples of that in the Bible, although... That's not permitted for rulers. Rulers and those in the government service are put in that position by God to do good and to use their authority for good, even as the under-magistrate. More about that in a little bit. But if that's not a practical option, then we turn to passive disobedience, simply not doing what we are commanded to do. And is there anything beyond passive disobedience? Yes, there's actively breaking an unjust law, which takes us to chapter 6, the chapter we've read. Chapter 6, my third point to you, doing what man's law forbids. Daniel had been faithful in his work. He gained the love and admiration and loyalty of the king. He lived his life in the public spotlight at the highest levels of government, despite all the difficulties which some of you know much better than me are present in a public institution, in a high-profile job, in a public company. 
He's on the verge of becoming prime minister now of Babylon, and his jealous colleagues anxiously search for some fault or failure in him, but they cannot find anything. They confess a tremendous confession from his own bitterest enemies. We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it concerning the law of his God. His religion had made him the best and most honest government official in the land. And it was that that was going to be attacked. And then came this point of crisis. Prayer is outlawed. And this is a very interesting and instructive case. What to do in this situation? What would you do? Take a public stand? Daniel had a practice of leaving court at lunchtime to go home and pray, as everyone knew. He did it three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Should he adjust his schedule? Maybe he should just pray to himself privately at his desk. But what would that mean? Think about it. If Daniel changed his daily pattern of prayer to God, he would be safe. And yet, what would that mean for everyone else? What would that say to the world? If he hid his prayers from those men, he wouldn't be saying anything, or would he? He would be preaching a loud sermon to everyone that the king is more to be feared than Daniel's God. No? And that application would be that serving God is good if it helps you get ahead, but not if you have to suffer. It's not worth it. That would demonstrate that God's people will love their own position or comfort or life more than God and that God is not better than life itself. So I can illustrate it to you in an uncomfortable way. There was this little Jewish boy who grew up in a German village in the first half of the 19th century. His father used to talk to him from time to time about God and the importance of believing God and obeying God. And the little boy believed him, as boys tend to believe their fathers. But then the family moved to another town. And unlike the town where they had lived, this town was not predominantly Jewish. It was predominantly Lutheran. The Jewish community there was, in fact, very, very small. It, it soon became clear to the boy's father that being Jewish was bad for business. So when that boy was six years old, the family converted to Lutheranism. And the boy never forgot what his father had done, trading in his God for a better-paying job. The whole experience, as he reflected on it, a young man, confirmed him as an atheist, that God is not real and certainly not to be taken seriously, that, that power and money are more important in life. And the proof of that is that even those who claim to be devout believers will not take him seriously. They'll dispense with God and their belief in God, apparently with little psychological pain, when it becomes inconvenient. Does anybody know the name of that young man? Karl Marx. And we can only speculate how 
things might have turned out differently for hundreds of millions of people, especially those killed, those dead, if Marx's father had been a man of conviction. So here's Daniel's answer to the dilemma. God would not have changed if Daniel had prayed in secret. God would still be God, and Daniel would still be ruler in Persia. What would have been different is that God would have been dishonored, injustice would go unchallenged, and that Daniel would be changed. There are many times when not taking a stand for God is taking a stand against God, which is how Jesus' proverb replies, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Daniel was in no way obnoxious. He followed his religious pattern. He didn't go to the woods. He went to his house. He didn't go to some inner chamber. He opened his window toward Jerusalem as he'd always done. He didn't pray in the wee hours, but morning, noon, and night. And you say, now, what's the point of dying for a prayer? He's He's right on the precipice of being prime minister. Think of the rationalizations that must have rushed into his head. My influence would be so great if I can just hold on. I can do so much more for God and my people if I am alive, not dead. It's only 30 days. I don't want to be a legalist. And people today might say, well, what's the point of civil disobedience? If you're in a government position, you, you abide by the law or get out, resign. And if, as some colleges, for instance, have recently been in the news for saying, if you can't have a prayer meeting or have a Bible study in a public place, well, why not just say, okay, I'll just do it in secret? Well, I heard one man who said, I may not be changing the world, but I sure am keeping the world from changing me. And that's where it must come to sometimes. And it is through many such people that the world itself does change. For sacrifice is the law of progress wrote J.R. Miller. Every blessing we enjoy, he says, represents a martyrdom somewhere in the past. Truth has always been advanced. The persecution of those who first stood up alone to declare what God has said. For example, the blessings of liberty that have come to us through tears and blood. Along the centuries, holy men wore chains and languished in dungeons that today we may have civil and religious freedom. Well, doing what man's law forbids. It also has a long pedigree in the scriptures. When the Sanhedrin commanded Peter and John to stop speaking in the name of Jesus again, they replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And here, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had first refused to pray falsely in chapter 3, Daniel refused not to pray faithfully in chapter 6. We must do what God's law requires even when man law forbids it. Or you don't have to go so far away. We're talking about things in the last few years. We can go back to the trials at Nuremberg 
In the aftermath of World War II and the horrors of the Nazis had come to light, and the perpetrators of mass murder, still being collected from South America, it seems, are brought to the concentration, the, uh, the concentration camps are brought to trial. Their defense was, we're only acting in full accord and in obedience to our country's constitution and its laws and the direct orders of our military superiors, which we could hardly refuse. And the judge completely dismissed their argument with this question. But gentlemen, is there not a law above our laws? Gentlemen, is there not a law above our laws? Did we not say that in this country when we were faced with tyranny? Did we not say we appeal, that we hold these things to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and so forth? There must be a time when we ask this question as well, gentlemen, is there not a law above our laws? In conclusion, you remember how there was a conscientious person a while ago who took a stand on issuing marriage licenses. This person did not think that the law was right and openly defied it and got into trouble and was dragged into court. Anybody remember that person's name? Somebody help me. Somebody? Oh, I know somebody knows. Huh? Kim Davis? Davis. Ah, I thought that's what you were going to think. His name was Gavin Newsom. Kim's right too, of course, but I'm talking about Gavin Newsom. After, in 2004, after gay marriage had been banned, under California state law, through Pop Proposition 8, Gavin Newsom openly defied the law and used his own power as mayor of San Francisco personally to order the clerk to issue gay marriage licenses to some 3,200 people. The law was not right, he, he said. He was going to take a stand and he was going to suffer the consequences. He had already made his appeals. He cited his own conscience and beliefs about right and wrong because the law of the land was an error. And that helped overturn the law and sway popular opinion and in a short time advanced a kind of moral revolution in the country, and not for the better, of course. Civil servants have a higher law and must do what's right no matter what. Anybody know what Gavin Newsom's doing today? <laughs> Nothing? Who said that? Oh, a Californian. Okay. <laughs> he is, of course, governor of California. Okay. Yeah, you think Kim Davis, everybody piled on her because this Tennessee law clerk said, I'm not going to sign licenses, right? Uh, it's just, it, it, that's just a step too far. Okay, well, what we see is uh, that some people are uh, going to be successful in this and some people are not going to be successful in this. But the point is, at the time, Gavin Newsom got in a little trouble. But as you can see now, he was very, very richly rewarded by the kingdom he served. But what kingdom do you serve? Do not think that... Do not think that there's not going to be this opportunity in your life. I, I think that many of us will have opportunities, some big, some small. I think the way things are going, many of us will have opportunities to make this 
our own opportunity to say whose we are and whom we serve. And do you not think that you may have to take an unpopular stand? But do you not think that even if you must temporarily suffer for this stand, like Gavin Newsom did, that you will not be rewarded, if not now in this world, and certainly in the coming kingdom and glory? So everybody remembers Kim Davis, but forgets about Gavin Newsom because... Well, Newsom's kingdom has come. Our kingdom's still coming. There in that lion's den, the angel of the Lord was with him, and I'm pretty sure the identity of the angel was none other than the Son of God himself, shutting the mouths of the lions. This much I do know, that on the cross, Christ was forsaken, that we might never be. He did die at great cost, that we may freely live. And he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Ultimately, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Do, we, do you need this victory today? Uh, are you seeking your allegiance and service in and to a world that is going to fail? Are you floating downstream in this world? Or are you alive forevermore in Christ? To be perfectly clear, salvation is, is free, completely free. And as soon as you take that free gift, the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to make you pay. <laughs> God did remarkable miracles in the life of Daniel and his friends. But it was not for them or for their sakes alone. Remember, of course, thousands of God's people were later to be thrown to the lions and not delivered in Rome, though they were every bit as faithful. But this is the point that he was making. It's stated in the book of Hebrews. Some, through faith, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and out of weakness were made strong. Others were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. The lesson here is not that if you just have faith like Daniel, God's going to deliver you from the mouth of the lion. God was here early on doing this unusual miracle in Daniel's life so that the nations of the earth and their rulers might know that, as the chapter says, he is the living God and steadfast forever. There is a higher law, and that those who believe in him, though they die, they shall surely live. This is what's overcoming the world. As a uh, young man, the church father, John Chrysostom, was brought before the emperor Julian and commanded to renounce Christ. Julian the Apostate, as he's known. The emperor threatened him, saying that if he wouldn't renounce Christ, he'd be banished from the realm and separated from his father's land the rest of his life. John responded, you cannot. The whole world is my father's land. You cannot banish me. The emperor said that I will take away all your property and treasures. You cannot, replied John, for my treasures are in heaven. The emperor said, I will send you to a place of absolute solitude where there is no friend for you to talk to. You cannot, replied John, for I have a friend that is closer than a brother. 
and he has promised to be with me always. My elder brother, Jesus Christ, to the end of the age. In anger, the emperor said, I will then take your life. John replied, you cannot. For my life is forever hidden with Christ in God. I will never leave you nor forsake you, it says. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Lo, says the Lord, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is our prayer, our hope. Let us continue our pilgrimage together, closing in prayer. Living God and steadfast forever, your kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Your dominion shall endure to the end. And you work signs and wonders, both in the heavens and on the earth. We commit ourselves afresh to you. We pray for those who are suffering, that they may be delivered from the mouth of the lions. We pray that through their blood, that they might be even the seed of the church and that they would suffer unto victory, even as our Lord himself first suffered, and in doing so, gained the victory. We behold him who was crowned with thorns, of whom we sang before, now crowned with every crown, and we pray that he would be near those 